on this podcast, I don't have to talk to an imaginary version of my friend because he's actually right there. Because this is Future Please, a heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. I like doing podcasts about Star Trek episodes where people have to stay awake while everyone else is sleeping so they can fly through the scary stuff. I'm your co-host, Peter. I mean, we did it once, so why not twice, right? We did do one once. That was that was Star Trek Voyager 1. What was that? <laughs> season 4? Season 5? I think that was a season five episode. No, season four, episode 25. Still crazy how long, how many fucking episodes these things pack into a season. Man, that was actually kind of uh, striking just now. I pulled up the one memory alpha seeing uh, Jerry Ryan back in her 20s after I've just seen her uh, in Picard. Some people can hold on to it, man. Some people got it <laughs> and they keep on having it. Yeah, Jerry Ryan in her 50s is still... An impressive sight. But was mm-hmm. this episode an impressive sight? Considering we've seen it once before. What was it called this time? This time it's see well what I say that was? That was season four, episode twenty-five. So this time around it's gonna be season three, episode sixteen, Doctor's Order. Yeah, like no fucking lie. This is a remake of an existing episode. Same premise. Same general challenge, uh, same character defining flaw, <laughs> like really, it's not just like similar in that the crew is asleep and one person has to drive the ship. It's like beat for beat, a remake of one from Voyager. That said, it's not the worst episode of Enterprise by a long no, shot. It's actually pretty well executed because John Billingsley uh, really gets to do a lot. And uh, actually, so does Julian Blaylock when you think about it. There's like a very interesting performance in this episode that makes you want to keep watching it. But it is uh, story-wise something that I just feel like we're going to repeat ourselves from our our episode years ago. Like the space part of this isn't all that interesting. The dr- drama part, it there's something there. Here you've got Voyager with this radical concept of a Starfleet vessel with no Starfleet around it, right? Just on their own, nowhere to go but home, and no one to help them but themselves, and forced to make these risky decisions. Um, and then you go to Enterprise, which is basically, especially at this point in the game, uh, Starfleet, vessel without the rest of Starfleet to back him up and it's a do or die but it's like such radically different concepts between Voyager which is you know the predecessor to Enterprise and to, to go back to the same well on so many different scripts like you told the story about Enterprise that is so different than anything this is the first ship Right. This is the first time humans went deep space season one and season two, which were really supposed to be rolling around in the the frontier, right? The Wild West. And then you get into season three and you've decided you're going to change to this uh, this tightly controlled plot where you're telling a meta story. And then be like, all right, let's uh, let's start reusing scripts. Like, yeah, there's a lot of episodes you got to cover for season three, but. Who the fuck was this? This was 
Chris Black. Chris Black, Roxanne Dawson. What I'm gonna see what Chris Black's written here. Black's yeah, pretty well, prolific, isn't he? Enterprise. I was like, hmm, who wrote one? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> but who wrote Doctor's Order? Who wrote one? That's that's. It's not that this idea doesn't work both in Voyager and Enterprise because it does, particularly in this season. If you're gonna do a, you have to cross the novel space hazard because you're under the gun to like save Earth. Then doing the well, then Phlox has to fly the ship solo through a space hazard. Okay, like I'm on board for that. It's works in Voyager the same way. Like you said, isolated ship has to overcome novel circumstances with no assistance, so they find a way to do so. But you know, you did it once. Just don't do it again. Like if you want to do a story about how Phlox is isolated and you want to do backstory in that circumstance about Denoblians and how social they are and how difficult it is for them to be alone and how we actually see on screen the concept of hallucinations as a healthy psychological response, which is a a reference to an earlier episode and something he's mentioned before, then great. Like, have them stuck in a cave-in or something. Like, do something different that allows you to explore that concept not exactly the script you've already made once we're gonna be doing some spoilers here but i think you know this is the right time for it like in one uh seven had to cross a dangerous part of space and granted hertz was like a full month wasn't it yeah it was versus this was supposed to be four days yes uh but under both circumstances there's hallucinations and you know that's it's violent hallucinations there's a little bit of gunfights um in this version of doing it there's actually a a real space dilemma so there's a serious deviation of plans versus uh, seven and nine having to go through one of the many times that she has to come to terms with not wanting to be part of the collective and growing as a person and blah 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 but if you're going to do the story again where, hey, everybody else has to be asleep and I am the only person who's functional, like put a credible threat in there. Make it real space pirates, especially uh, fucking Delphic Expanse, where it has been nothing but pirates and raiders left and right. And especially if this thing, you know, the plot device here is going to be this uh, interphasic goo that the creators of the spheres are are placing there like. Have one of those guys run around causing problems. Right. Because you just introduced them. You just made them a threat. So explore that more. Let me see here. So one aired in 98. This guy, uh, Doctor's Orders, is? 2004. Four. So six years difference, which I guess is a pretty healthy stretch between two duplicate episodes. Yeah, but like... The same people are still making it. I just don't buy that they don't like remember. Oh, yeah, I guess we made that already. Like e- exactly that. Like no one knew that. No one brought it up when someone brought the script. Oh, the doctor has to pilot the ship alone. Have we done that before? Yes, <laughs> we have. <laughs> We've done that before. But was oh, he hallucinating? Uh, uh, yes, yeah. actually, he was also hallucinating. But everyone had to be in a coma. Yeah, that I we did that. We also did that. <laughs> So, 
what's what's the strengths of this episode? Same as one. You're taking some of your best cast members. You're taking all of the extra people that just get in the way and pretty much taking them off screen almost entirely. And you're focusing on interesting characters that have interesting personal story arcs to develop. And those characters are being portrayed by good actors that can carry scenes by themselves. Yeah. And John Billingsley was up to the task, right? And he, he's shown flashes of brilliance throughout the show, right? Mm-hmm. He, you know, it's not a stunner that he stepped into this episode and was like, yes, I'm going to really be able to sell what you're giving me to do here. Now, um, unlike one, there is a strong fantasy element at play in Doctor's Orders, which is, of course, Porthos and the idea that you could be left alone with a beagle and it not have been blown out an airlock by the time that Jonathan Archer wakes up. Well, he starts in the teaser as just a, such a very good boy, right? Like the whole teaser is the idea that Porthos is not only smart enough to know exactly where his quarters are, uh, but he's desperate to return because he knows his master is there and he, he wants to hang out with his master while he is uh, incapacitated as we see. So Porthos is let in by a, uh, a Phlox who gets exasperated and trying to chase him down, eventually lets him in, and then he goes and licks Archer's face, and that gives you the sense, oh, something's going on. There's a little doohickey on his head. Um, Phlox isn't seeming to be worried about this, so all must be going to some kind of plan. So here is your intro into what's going on. It's Part a- of that intro, too, is a pretty neat pan through all the major sets pieces showing that the ship is completely uninhabited or, you know, dormant at this point. You know, it's interesting tracking shots in this episode. Actually, when I come to think of it, like through hallways, there's a lot of like complex camera movement that Roxanne doesn't have to pull off for the motion. When you consider that there's only one cast member, maybe two cast members in each of these scenes, you got to do something to keep it interesting. And that's something that, Robert Duncan McNeil would always focus on uh, back before I gave up on Delta flyers because of Garrett Uh, was that Berman was insistent that, you know, these are motion pictures that they're making that there needs to be action on the screen. And if it's just two people sitting and talking, then that camera needs to be doing something to create a, uh, a dynamic energy. And you're not just getting these static shots of people sitting there having real life conversation where hands aren't flying everywhere. And and it's two dudes chilling. I did notice during one of the panning shots on the bridge, though, because I want to say it's the furthest back the camera has ever shown to show the most of the bridge. Did you notice in front of uh, Mayweather's con there's handles? Yes, I did. But they look like like who's part of the set like that was that was there on purpose. Yeah, they're they're part of the set, but I'm like, who the fuck would be up that far in the bridge that they would need to have oh shit bars up there? <laughs> you know, you never know when the it's going to be a, a a breach. You know, you're gonna have to grab the oh shit bars or get sucked into the vacuum of space. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, be ready. especially when you're you know, the Zindi blow your roof off and turn the bridge into a convertible. You bet you wish you had some fucking oh shit bars then. <laughs> That's not going to do anything for the oxygen you don't have anymore, but. One at least your body's gonna time. 
Yeah. <laughs> At least your body. Will, that's why there's uh, seatbelts on airplanes. It's not to save your life. It's to keep most of your body with the with the rest of the wreckage. <laughs> it's, good. it's good that they're thinking ahead like that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, hey, uh, our command center, it's on the very top of the ship. Hey, by the way. Why, when we're at our duty stations, do we have to clip these safety lines onto our belt? Oh, well, you know, in case the hull is ever sheared away, uh, our bodies don't go floating too far away and we can get proper burials. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you did you think that you were joining a social club? We're in space. People shoot at us. Most maybe, likely, most of you will die. <laughs> maybe we should move the bridge like down a couple floors. No. It's on the top. We got to be up here like a pimple just waiting to get popped. When we cut back from the intro, Flox is providing exposition by writing letters again to Dr. Lucas. We have heard of Dr. Lucas before. Dr. Lucas was the subject of uh, letters that he uh, Flox was writing back, I think, in Dear Doctor. Dear Doctor. Which one was that? Yeah, I'm not familiar with that forget. episode. I don't think I caught that one. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real underground sleeper hit, you know, like, oh, yeah. yeah, but you think I'd so like this it? is, you know, there's it has a lot to offer the Enterprise fan. Uh, <laughs> the I like the continuity that he's like continually writing to he's his pen pal, you know, and he's like, what describing. a perfect way to have him frame the entire episode and also further exposition through the episode, like setting that up in Dear Doctor, real stroke of genius, uh, especially with episodes like this. And he there was another one where he was talking to him, too, wasn't there? This it is the third and the Dr. Lucas story arc. I want to say this is entry three. I think he will only because the other time he wrote a letter, he wrote it to his son, not mm. to, to Dr. Lucas. I think he only ever wrote him in Dear Doctor before. He does show up in the show eventually, like as a character, but that doesn't happen until season four. So is that Jeremy Lucas? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you see who played him? <laughs> Yeah, it's jump to conclusions, guy. Excellent. Yes. Maybe he'll be able to redeem himself from fucking Fairhaven. Oh, um, he's uh, he's much better here, but I guess there's not a high he, bar. How could he not be? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the same page. It's just the two references, Dear Doctor and then Doctor's Orders. And then there's the episode season later. You know, great plot exposition there. Uh, it's an established character. Uh, he's going over again, good continuity, like, hey, sorry, so many of your friends and family got killed in that Earth terrorist attack. But, um, you know, that's a big deal. And you'll have to apologize for me falling off the pen pal train because, you know, we're trying to jack borrow our way over to saving Earth from uh, a similar fate. But we've run across this conundrum and we start getting some flashbacks to really set the stage for what happened. And that is uh, Enterprise approaching uh, this anomaly, like we mentioned, um, back during uh, Harbinger. That's correct. Enterprise encounters some space blob, basically, right? The blob yeah, in space. It's, it's supposed to be some kind of other dimension that's not compatible with real space. Because the guy from 
from Harbinger, he like couldn't live in real space. He'd started disintegrating. And I think the supposition was that this is sort of like galactic terraforming on the behalf of whoever this is. And so it's not good. This is all just like this went from mysterious to actively something we need to prevent. Uh, so they start singing a real song on the bridge as they look at how big this is. And like, man, this is big. This is what tw- two weeks to go around it. Yeah. What was that uh, song going on a bear hunt? Can't go over it. You know what I'm talking about, right? I don't actually. You're on well, your I'm own sure. on that. No, it's me and everybody else. You're going to be wrong about <laughs> okay. this. It's like I'll be are... a link when this episode goes out. Someone will educate me. I'm sure. Uh, I would like to take this opportunity to take my victory lap on the phaser beams yeah, being yeah, better yeah. than bursts. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely that was a landslide. I was the only vote. Yeah, for for as pulses. you always are. And Marcus and, and, is the one who started it. Marcus, that I bought that man yeah. dinner. I fed him, and he does me like this just brutality mm-hmm. brutality yeah well um <laughs> just like how you're like yeah casual casual dub i'm good th- thanks for creating another stormtrooper in my wrong army that's what you're <laughs> saying over there uh the two weeks it'd take to fly around this is unacceptable because at this point archer has uh escape roomed LARP bamboozled the weapons designer, the Zindi uh, yeah, Degra, yeah, Degra, right? Who mm-hmm. doesn't remember or theoretically doesn't remember what happened? They're trying to fly out to this binary star uh, that he gotcha bitched uh, the location from out of Degra. And if they get there in two weeks, then it might be too late and Earth might be getting, you know, death starred. So, uh, there's only one real option that's to fly through it. And the solution is to put everybody in a coma while seven of nine flies the ship. through, (laughs) And uh, they're predicting it's only supposed to take four days, which we'll find out is not actually the case because this um, whatever alien space math is going on. And boy, you want to talk about some fucking space math. This is one for the, for the textbooks, right? Yeah, because I, I, you know, I hope Taryn's still listening because if he is, he can, he, or, or Jack, Jack is all someone who might also explore this, but it's going to take a matter of hours to clear at warp four, before days at full impulse. So someone do the math on if that's right. And also remember, this is a pre TNG warp scale. So, right. Yeah, got to use this sort of nerfed warp scale, but and man, by the end when they got to start doing like math on how the, the Cochrane dynamic uh, equation and all the variables there. And I was like, I never want to be a Starfleet engineer. This sounds like the worst space math to have to fucking worry about. I kind of I think I really appreciate Enterprise for the fact that it's the really first Star Trek show that tried to provide actual hard techno babble. Then made you like, oh, like engineers are brilliant. They're just incredible mathematicians and physicists that have to like calculate multivariable problems across disciplines in order to bend space and time. Like that. In fact, that's what Tucker says in this episode. Like that is a machine built to to break the laws of physics. I love that scene, and I want to talk a lot about that scene when we get there because that part of this episode really felt like 
technocracy void engineers or like some fucking Warhammer. Yeah, Warhammer 40K, Gellerfield shit. Yeah. Like Event Horizon shit, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but at this point, okay. Phlox, because he is a Denoblian, which is like the next best thing second to, well, not, not even second. He, he's at this point, he's more Swiss army knife than even Vulcans are. Because usually, you know, we saw from Tuvok, uh, you know, Vulcans are so strong. They can stand on the outside of uh, gravity elevators. Uh, they're telepaths. They live through all this stuff. It's been Phlox assuming the role of the holographic invincible doctor and sometimes the invincible Vulcan. Like it's him fighting off the telepathic alien space ghosts. He's resisted assimilation successfully, which really, I mean, if we're going to jump a fucking shark, that that's the coup de grace. You know, I won up the fucking peak 24th century Borg. He did it by basically drinking bleach, but like, I it was a it was a crude solution and I actually kind of feel like it works. Mm-hmm. He's just like, I don't know if what worked. I just did all of it. <laughs> yeah, radiation's a more elegant weapon from a more refined time. I want to talk about the stasis he puts everybody in, right? Puts a little dot on their head. <laughs> in Voyager it was ridiculous because there was just deck after deck of these stasis pods, which yeah, like where'd the fuck these come from? When'd you build them? Where's replicators, like- right? Which right. That's industrial replicators somewhere in the engineering area. Take all the conversations we had about transporter rations and what a precious commodity. I'm sorry, not transporter replicator rations were and throw that out the window as you made. What was there? 400 people on Voyager. No, 160, yeah, 160, 180, pretty low. It's still a lot of fucking beds to make, right? But they're under for a month, so it makes sense. And also that's, you know, you've got plenty of time to prepare for it. Thinking that he could even come up with like 80 fucking neural inhibitor dots is its own thing. But so so here's the budget friendly way they do this shit. You want to talk about a bottle episode? This is a fucking bottle. This is a wrong definition. This is a uh, TV tropes bottle definition where there is no guest stars. There is no new set pieces. This is a very budget friendly episode. Like the- literally everyone's just laying in bed. <laughs> so let's talk about that. OK, it's only four days. Let me tell you what happens in four days of laying in bed. Lots of number one. A lot of number two. Okay. So yeah, every, every single quarter will be just caked in shit and piss. Dookie and pee everywhere. I didn't see any catheters. That's a lot of people to catheterize, by the way, right? Yeah. Flocks just touched a lot of dicks. <laughs> I didn't see any bedpans. So I don't know if everybody just, you know, took some candle wax and, and closed off the fucking sealed off the jars right there's some secret starfleet tech where they just like hit you with the hypo spray and it's like no pee and poop for four days yeah everybody got salted down you're all gonna be saltier than a fucking slim gym um bed sores right that's a real issue in nursing is if people lay in the same position too long they get these nasty sores everybody just in their fucking uniforms they did a nice job with scott bacula because you see him essentially you know archer before they go to sleep and then archer 
on the last day, and, you know, it's got a little stubble that came in. Um, but yeah, everybody's just laying in their beds from the Makos to the command crew to, to everyone else. It's just flocks and Porthos and, oh, hey, guess who else is here? Oh, one thing I guess we should mention. Those toe claws. Yeah. Like, I don't know why we had to see that. I'm going to be honest with you. Oh, that's, that's what you want to talk about. <laughs> that's the one Noblian like trade I didn't need to witness. Like, who? When did Roxanne Dawson start directing? Because it it wasn't Flox's uh, or uh, Neelix's dancing feet, right? Let's take a look at her directing credits. She it's only had impossible. two in Voyager: Riddles and Workforce. God, Workforce is a good one, man. Well, yeah, it was Workforce Part Two. Fucking was, Space Mark. She's the one that jabronied Space Mark right there. Pour one out for Space Mark, man. That might be my favorite Voyager guest character <laughs> was Space Mark. He was awesome. And he did not deserve to be left behind. It was just so fucking forced. I will say he was my favorite Voyager guest that was a good guy. There were some some really oh, good, some bad guys. guys. We had Space Boddicker. Come on. Yeah. Can't can't beat the can't beat bitches leave. <laughs> timeline leave um and the the foot thing the alien foot thing could do without it yeah, just stop just whoever the alien foot guy is that gets employed <laughs> to do star trek just tell that guy just hit him with the fucking warning bat like stop it you fucking weirdo we see you when we don't like you directed by quentin tarantino yeah. but uh he he's going around doing his thing, and as he does, he starts to hear noises outside. You know, he's watching movies by himself. He's walking the dog. He's going he goes to the old Paramount back catalog of movies that they can show for free. He goes into sick bay naked, <laughs> like like you know, like you do going to the bathroom like at night. And just decides like, eh, no one around everywhere. I like his naked guy makeup, the gills going down his spine. Yeah, I like I also that John Billingsley is the one middle aged, normal looking dude on the show with a, with a bit of gut. And I like, felt what I'm sure many female um, viewers of Star Trek do. And it's uh, looking at the person on the screen and comparing my boobs to theirs. Yeah, I'd be like, hmm, where are we at? I don't know. <laughs> Who's bigger, John Billings or me? Let me let me yeah. get a handful here and see. Hmm. Uh, also, I, wondering if you had to like uh, shave down everything to get the prosthetics on. The, the uh, memory alpha says that the writers decided to do this because John Billingsley at a cast party theorized that you know Denoblians have three wives because Denoblians have three dicks. So why not like write a scene where where Flox's pants come down and like someone sees all three of his giant dicks and then faints. Um, you know, just that's as a joke, some kind of, real Robert Picardo doctor talk. Yes, and so they wrote an actual scene of like, "All right, John, you're gonna have all your clothes off." I wonder <laughs> if uh, John Billingsley is going to direct his own episode of Enterprise where he gets to kiss a bunch of Polynesian resort girls. <laughs> Picardo, I'm it was looking at still you. Amazing that that actually happened, right? Yeah. Like, no one stopped him. No one said. Robert, <laughs> this is, 
This inappropes. Is, like, this is an HR call waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like, I guess it's, I guess if you're saying like upfront, no, that's the joke. I'm making a meta joke that because I'm the director of this episode, for some reason, I'm making out with Poly- Polynesian girls and that's how he convinced everybody. Right. Like he just, mm-hmm. he got them to buy into the fact that you're supposed to laugh at the fact that, that he's doing this with the power he's been granted. Other than that, it's just old, old creepy man shit. What if it was uh, Scott Bakula? It was the uh, Shadows of Pajem. Mm-hmm. Is that the one where uh, he gets duct taped to to Paul, and then her boobs fall on his face? Yeah. yeah. No. Yes. Is because that's the one where Shran shows up. Yeah, where Shran shows up because it's like the terrorist planet. Yeah. Or they're yeah. Or the planet yeah, they, sponsored they by fall the... over and then the boobs are in his face. Yeah, and, and they do the soft so... work boob comedy. Yeah. So, I mean, that'd be a great one for Scott Bakula to have directed. That'd be right up there in the Picardo Hall of Fame. That'll be the new, uh, hey, I'm directing and I'm getting, um, there's benefits to my directorial style here. If I recall, to give Scott Bakula actually some, like, good guy credit, I think he always, he, he, I remember from the memory alpha of that, he didn't like having to do that. And he was always, like, very critical of, like, how they were treating Julian Blaylock of, like, stop selling the show on this poor woman's tits (laughs) like come on scott bacula doesn't have his head up his own fucking ass like nobody should be in that situation be like man this is gonna age great i'm gonna look i'm gonna look stellar yeah no and it makes sense that it's him he did a network television show he's like Mm -hmm. a name he's not a nobody uh so he feels a little more confident be like guys what the fuck how many years in tv and not a single me too yeah bacula must be a fucking alien or a yeah, robot or, of some or, sort. Or just normal, right? Like yeah. one of those guys who just has like a, a, a spouse that's not in the industry and he just goes to work and comes home like. Uh, There's consequences for fucking around. Anybody who has ever had to go down in their basement <laughs> when everybody else is asleep. At two o'clock and the lights are out. Yeah. When I close up at work, you know, I got to walk through this warehouse and it'll be five o'clock broad daylight and I can see sunlight coming through like dock doors and stuff. As soon as I turn those lights off and the wind blows, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there are at least six chupacabras hiding around corners waiting to fucking pounce on me. Being anywhere that is a big place that's usually bustling with activity and being there alone is creepy. So I think they did a really nice job instilling. Again, there's like this kind of event horizon subtext to this that you are in a very hostile part of space. You're in a fucked up part of space because of, you know, the space blob growing out there. And this place that's usually jam packed with bustling activity in life at all hours is completely quiet. And then factor on top of it, you are an alien that is used to having like cockroach hives of people that cool continuity call it the Denoblius, you know, is extremely dense and highly populated areas by choice so this is a real fish out of water story for him i uh, there are two great choices here as much as we're bagging on how repetitive it is one really painting a picture that what's happening is a consequence of a genuine inability to be alone that flocks suffers from is and that it's part of his dna as a denoblian that they are a deeply social people and that being deprived of that is psychologically damaging. And two, 
that they convey this through the conceit of, quote, to Paul, end quote, showing up as he is exploring a no- noise in the basement. And he acting as if T'Pol being there was completely what he would expected to see and that she's basically with him the rest of the episode. And the way that Jolene Playlock plays her is quite specifically T'Pol as if it was an expression of Flox's understanding of T'Pol through his own subconscious, you know, like it kind of acts like T'Pol, but also just kind of acts like him because it's an imperfect expression of his need to communicate his thoughts to someone else. You get what I'm saying? Yes. When you watch this the first time, uh, did you just immediately assume, all right, well, this is not the real to Paul. Yes. Because it, they, they made it clear he was the only one running the ship. So her being up was weird. Now I assumed the first time watching it, like, is someone fucking with him, you know? Right. And that was my ultimate hope in all of this. So it would not have been a complete retread of one that there was a Zindi Zabator on the ship, or maybe it was a pop tart fuckface that had the crush on Hoshi. If, you know, they hadn't made him like a last minute kind of benefactor, like this would have been a, excellent revenge episode for that guy had they just dipped out of there and he not been like oh by the way you know i want to help you out after all even though i did just try to kill your entire fucking crew if you've been like you know you motherfuckers left me alone on the planet like i got you now everybody else is asleep and i got one guy and i'm gonna try and convince that guy to steer the fucking ship into the sun or blow the ship up or or some sort of a psychological saboteur that they couldn't be on the ship to just, you know, blow the warp core up. Or just this the people of the spheres, right? Like, just them doing that. It doesn't have to even be super complex. You don't have to reach all the way back to that. You, you've just introduced a set of bad guys that we don't understand well. Have this be part of their game. They're trying to destroy Enterprise. You've got the Zindi working with a very interesting mercenary pool. If you go back to... Um, what was... Playboy mom. Oh, Regine. Regine, right? You're not going to bring her back as a villain, but again, this this Boba Fett bounty hunter pool of interesting operators putting real people on the ship means that, yeah, just kill Phlox or knock Phlox out and you can blow the ship up. But if you're trying to manipulate Fox by appearing as to Paul and taking advantage of the situation, her feeding him bad advice like that could have been really cool. And that'd be a little bit of retread of the, uh, the EMH when they were trying to splice this program. And then uh, that was like, I think the first appearance of Barkley, right? Well, the, the first appearance of Barkley was in like season one. Cause when, when it was, when he was having like a psychotic break or something, that's right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, Barkley was trying to convince him to blow the ship up or blow himself up. I don't know if the ship was at stake. I think it was himself. Yes. But the action there was to blow up the warp core. Yes. Which would crash the program. So there could have been some retread there, but I I think it would have been harmless. Uh, You know, 
you see uh, T'Pol pop in. Maybe that's the real T'Pol. And maybe they were just tricking you that, you know, made you think that Flox had all the cards in his hand. But what was interesting to me in this, and I, they don't really call it out in Memory Alpha, I don't think. But as soon as I started my suspicions, like, is she fake? What is she touching? Or does she have her hands in her pocket? Sixth Sixth rule. Yeah, the Sixth Sense rule. Like that movie actually kind of ruins you on that on that twist because if you're already looking for it because you've seen that movie, it becomes obvious very quickly she's not touching anything, she's not interacting at all with the environment. It's always Flocks. She it's touches like, Flocks a few times, but by the end when it's like we need to enter coordinates or you know where's this and that, and she's like, I I don't I don't know I don't actually know space math. I know I'm like super smart, but um I don't know where the light switch is. You're gonna have to do everything, and I was like, all right, well. It's clear what's going on here. I think it becomes clear early because of her reactions to things are Flox's reactions to things, not hers. You know, the way she rolls her eyes, the way she's kind of somewhat sarcastic in her replies. It's very not to Paul, but it's also like to Paul by way of Flox quite specifically, which is a credit to Julian Blaylock. That's like an odd note to be asked to hit. And she does hit it, you know? I didn't really pick up that they were similar gestures to him, but uh, in retrospect, I, I think I could see it. Versus like seven of nine imitating the doctor for their body swap episode. But I think it's because the EMH is so hammy and so over the top that it's a much easier to identify like visual, physical style of uh, of acting and behaving. Yeah, like and they're not really going for comedy beats here either. No, no, it's just it's uh, if you were it's like Julian Blaylock decided I'm playing to Paul, but I'm playing to Paul if I was trying to emulate flocks, you know, and it's a very different performance than Jerry Ryan playing Picardo's doctor isn't <laughs> beat for beat, you know, just in her body. I would say that if I was flocks after the first time I heard a weird creak or or a knock. I'd be packing heat the rest of those four days. I'd have I have two phasers on me, right? And uh, I love that as he starts hearing weird things around the ship and he goes to investigate it, like he demands that Porthos comes with him. And again, as a guy that had like my uh, my washer and dryer. Did I ever tell you about the basement that I used to have? No. I lived in some fucking old ass house that was a big house that someone had like sectioned up into smaller portions. I had my washer and dryer in the basement, which the stairs to get down there were in my fucking bedroom, which was horrifying. And then in the basement, there was also like those cellar doors. You could like go from outside into the basement. So I lived in constant fear that someone was going to break into the basement and instantly have access to my bedroom. This fucking basement was terrifying. It was like earthen walls, like stone. It was just covered in these weird crystalline slugs, right? So that was fucking gross and and weird on its own. And then where the washer and dryer was, was this was the first room. And then there was like this wall uh, with a doorway. And then there was the back room. I don't know what the fuck was back there. I was frankly a fucking Stargate based on what you've described so far terrifying it was a bunch of shit and it was like tables and chairs and other debris but it was all centered in the room so you could walk around the perimeter of it but you couldn't really see through it and in this debris were 
at least four. I got fucking goosebumps talking about this right. <laughs> at least four mannequins. Oh, oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. It's like like a demon was summoned there. You know, I would. Or, there's unclean spirits, and you could just see shadows of like a hand or a head, and I would see stuff moving in there, and I'm like. So I wouldn't go in this basement unless I had my dog. I'd make the fucking dog go down. And the first time we went down there, the dog got halfway down the stairs, looked at me, turned around and came back up. And I was like. <laughs> so <laughs> loyal hound indeed. Uh, smart boy is what he was. So yeah, I would not go down there unless the fucking dog was with me. So I, I 100% accept and by. This this shit going on with him dragging uh, Porthos all over the place. This is the realest Star Trek has ever been. Okay, that is, is this episode right? <laughs> so uh, as the paranoia builds, because Flax is still maintaining his hearing things, his his projection of T'Pol is trying to convince him he's experiencing hallucinations because that's what happens to Denoblians when they have to be alone. Great call out. Right. Like, and they, they develop it. Like you get more context as to why that is, because it's a lot of flocks ultimately talking to himself, but in the vert, in, in the visage of, of T'Pol of, yeah, we very, we're so social. One marriage isn't enough. You know, we live in giant cities next to each other by choice. He waxes, poetically about like you know you never know we're gonna get go to the the fucking club and you're gonna meet like three other thruples and we're all and it's all gonna get wild you know he's he's all not, about because let's remember when T'Pol was uh space horny like you know he completely shied away so all this big talk about swinging i'm not buying it unless you know the denoblian male's role in that is to like stand back and just watch the girls go crazy the hulu <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, we, I don't we've only him. seen one Deno- Denoblian uh, woman, and she was definitely all over somebody. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, the talk about hallucination being healthy. Nice shout out. Speaking of Count Crotula, when they are in their doubting phase of what's happening to Hoshi on her psycho or telepathic contact is uh, Flock saying, no, you know, maybe you are hallucinating where I'm from. That's considered healthy. It's a great way to deal with stress. That's another um, concept between Voyager and Enterprise where there's a neat difference. Voyager stood out from at least next gen. And that when goofy shit would start happening, they would just openly say it and people would give them the benefit of the doubt and say, all right, I'm going to assume you're not crazy for the moment. We're going to try and figure this out. And like most of yeah. the time that really paid out well with a few times there being like legit space madness where like you're just fucking with me. You're crazy. We're going to have to, you know, sedate you. I think it worked really well on Voyager specifically because they they were so isolated. It made a lot more sense for them to treat that seriously because like we're in a fucking bizarro land space. Weird shit has happened to us so many times that it only makes sense that I believe you. Whereas if you're in Federation space on the flagship, you're going to be more circumspect, you know, like right environmental thing. Again, Delta Quadrant's a wild place. And by believing your crazy story, you're erring on the side of caution. You can't afford to make mistakes 
on Voyager. You only have so many photon torpedoes. You only have so many <laughs> shuttlecraft, or so we were led to believe. And, th- and that number is whatever the writers decided it would be that day. You got a D20 and you just roll it three times and that's your uh, that's your pool for that moment. Um, it doesn't really matter in this episode, but because it's a hallucination and it's all bullshit anyways, but you know, flocks admitting or, you know, trying to tell his coworker, Hey, I think I'm seeing things like there's a lot of shame involved in that. There's hesitation, uh, hallucinate hallucination to Paul, like pushes back and says, you're just being crazy, which ultimately her advice is correct. Yeah. It's flocks right? giving himself the right advice. Yeah. But you can look at the situation and say, in Voyager, there was this open atmosphere to to take your coworkers' crazy claims and explore because you're in the wild west of the Delta Quadrant. Here, it's kind of the same, but you can kind of excuse it. You know, it's the wild west of space. You haven't encountered anything yet, so anything is possible. But you haven't fostered this open culture of I'm going to believe your crazy stories because you don't have enough experience to know that that shit might happen and maybe you need to roll with the punches sometimes. Exactly. Right. You lack the context that they have. So you think that they're still anomalies when it's actually, you know, price of doing business. Also part of the scary scene we're laying out here. Um, the mention that a week prior that, uh, trip had convinced him to watch the exorcist. Oh yeah. Perfect. Dick move, <laughs> dick move trip. Perfect. All right, going to buy yourself like on this, the ship, huh? You you fucking cloned me, and then my clone told my the girl I got a crush on that I I I got a crush on her. Well, I'll fix your ass. I got a great movie. You're gonna love it. <laughs> it's spoopy. <laughs> it's a real classic. Watch it alone, <laughs> and then and then be alone on the ship for <laughs> days. Uh, the. Everything takes a dark turn when he goes to check on Hoshi and Hoshi is being attacked by extremely large Zindi insectoids. Uh, The bad kind of CG we've expected with the said insectoids so far. Um, And this this freaks flocks out enough that he basically runs to the armory and says, all right, to Paul, you and I were arming ourselves to the teeth. We're going to shoot everything that moves in this place. We're going to rambo up. We're under attack. Let's go. Well, what's the order of events here? Um, he hears strange noise. He first he's in engineering. He sees shadows move and run off down a pipe. Then is that when he thinks he sees uh, something on the outside of the hull? He, see, he hears noises, then he manifests to Paul, and then he feels like he sees something on the hall, and then, like, to Paul does what you mentioned, which is, you're just hallucinating, it's not real. And then after that is when he goes to check on Hoshi, and there's an insectoid there. Mm, and then when zombie Hoshi? After that. So, yeah, he sees the insectoid, runs down the hall, then there is, like, the most B-movie slow closing door of slow closing doors. It's like, I, it's like the, the door had dramatic timing, you know, like it like actually was like, okay, hold on. I can't close. You're too far away. Okay. This is a resident. This. this is a resident evil grade timed door. Uh, hey, we're going to go strap up. 
I'm going to try and shoot the boss's dog because like part of his brain knows it's only a matter of time until this beagle gets really annoying. So I should just stun it now and I'll go put it back in that dunk tank full of brain juice for the rest of the ride. <laughs> poor, poor, poor Porthos, you know, he's just like, oh, are we playing a game? Was that a laser pointer? I'm a dog. I don't fucking know. <laughs> like, I'm a happy dog. I don't know. You just tried to shoot me. <laughs> like, what if I've already episode- forgiven you for something I don't even know you did. <laughs> What if the episode just took a left turn and like the entire setback half of it, that's just, you know, they completely abandoned the hallucination thing and it's flocks actually shooting Porthos and having to spend the rest of the episode and like grueling uh, surgery, emergency surgery to save the dog from dying before Archer wakes up. Oh, God. And then the, the third part, like the resolution of the episode could be like weekend at Bernie's only it's Porthos. And he's like, oh, no, reanimating. No. Oh, yeah, we could have gone for a reanimator angle oh. for the rest of this. And then like, That's you like know, the surprise crew member, you can't kill. You can't kill Porthos. Come on, man. Read. No, I said can't. I'm, I'm saying, yeah, that, that, that's OK. So that's how you do the rest <laughs> of this. Is he kills Reed. He reanimates Reed. And then Reed has to be like gang beat by the crew and dismembered and throw out an airlock and then you know everybody lives happily ever on so after he almost shoots porthos is when he does get the the horror hoshi like hoshi went and was in the ring uh, like goes to check on her her shower's on she's like he's like holy shit you can't be awake you're gonna be dead in like in minutes we gotta get you back under it's me it's flocks i hope you didn't fall out of the ceiling and your shirt pop off knock knock <laughs> god that feels like a galaxy ago but that was like the season two premiere wasn't it fuck yeah god, that that really might go down as the most gratuitous use of of uh nudity in this show like ha- hands down right like as bad as the show can be in blatantly getting boobs out there, like that one just seemed the most absurd. It's because that's what T'Pol is there for, like it or not. T'Pol is there for boobies. And Hoshi was supposed to be there for science representation or something and then contorting her into I fell out of the ceiling and my shirt flew off. Uh, was very jarring. I, I'd be curious to know what her thoughts were on that scene, um, you know, 20 some years later. Well, this scene, when we see Hoshi, she is in some excellent horror makeup. They got some guy to come in and layer on some crusty sort of broken skin barnacles, whited out her eyes. It's fucking good shit. She looks terrifying. He comes in. He's like, hey, what? What? you can't be awake. And then she peeks around the corner and she's like, actually, uh, I have the phage now. I'm a Vidian. Yeah, this does look like the phage. Um, and uh, while I'm like demonically possessed, it'd be real cool if I could bicycle kick you in the dick again. And Flox is like, nope, not doing that shit again. And he, you know, manages to escape before she can fucking Liu Kang his wiener. Or just like uh, jump out of the television at him. I'm not sure exactly which. Yeah, this is. Uh, I would have liked to see that makeup on everybody when they became the dinosaur people. Like that's the kind of like rapid. Physical visage like. Change of 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 body that I believe not someone turning into a fucking dinosaur, but someone's face rotting off and something else growing underneath it. I can buy that. 
I it's almost a shame that it's so underused because it's just in this quick shot, right? Like this is something that could a lot of jump more. scares in this episode. Yeah, they're going for a horror vibe. Obviously, they even referenced Exorcist, but like this was just such a good makeup effect. I wanted it to be on screen more than it was. You know so, what? Yeah, that that's that's the Exorcist right there. And that's a good call out that, you know, he is hallucinating and he is using previous memories because that is that is right at home in Exorcist. So let me recap who gets to be in this episode. Archer has a fair amount of dialogue where he's like, I trust you. You know, we're good to go. Uh, Trip gets a little bit of talk time to Paul's in it heavily. Hoshi gets to be in here as a fucking zombie. Mm -hmm. You could have put anybody in there. Mayweather gets to be in there with a zero spoken lines because while he's talking, uh, Flox, Flox is actually is, talking. Yes. So, so uh, Mayweather's actor doesn't get any like fucking voice line credits. And I don't think Reed really gets any talking either. Like this is a real. He gets fuck. like he, he's in the briefing room where he's like, well, it's still faster than going around it. I think that's it. I think that's literally all he says. Pay run on 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 that one or two lines of dialogue. I think their checks cash the same no matter what. So they got contracts again. Things I'd love to know, like how salty is the fucking crew? Like I thought I was going to be in this major TV program and I've just been basically pushed behind like guest Israeli actresses at this point. (laughs) You know, Uh, major Hayes has gotten more screen time this episode, this season than than Hoshi. Um, but you know, if a paycheck's a paycheck, who cares? But there's got to be some sort of ego involved in this as well. So, after the horrifying vision of Hoshi, uh, he also encounters Archer, and he comes to the firm conclusion: "Oh, I'm hallucinating, and this might actually be the area of space that we're in." actually affecting me somewhat right like i'm resistant to it but i'm not i don't have perfect defense so the longer we stay in here the more my hallucinations are going to get worse and so we need to problem solve and right now uh and that's the second time since the borg encounter that he has still underestimated a space dilemma and basically fallen victim to something he thought that he was going to be safe from a little He's bit of hubris. To, That's part yeah. of his character, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Liggy goes, all right, well, <clears throat> I got to thug it out the last four hours, and then I can start waking everybody else up. I can go into suspended animation, heal myself up. It'll be fine. He and Paul get up to the bridge. Surprise, surprise. They should have been out of the space blob 20 minutes ago, and things have changed. Space math is real fucky here. And by their calculations at full impulse, <coughs> it's going to be 10 more weeks before they're clear. This So space blob is growing at a wild rate, whatever this terraforming effort is. And I'm guessing they're going to follow up on this heavily next episode. Because it they, seems like a pretty big fucking deal now, right? The, I mean, uh, the, the, the nature of whatever is going on with the spheres and terraforming space time definitely plays into the rest of the season. Uh, Cause that's, that's a wild deviation from what their initial calculations were. 
Uh, and the only way for them to realistically get through this is going to be to activate the warp drive, which Trip had said earlier, under no circumstances should they do it. They don't know what effect it'll have on the ship. And of course, and, most importantly, Flox has no idea how warp engines work, which is when we get to, I think, the scene and the dialogue you're most excited about. Because they're in the warp drive. They're in the they're in the engine room. He's looking at the warp core. And he is explaining, like, I am not qualified to try and do this. And like to Paul, through his subconscious, is trying to tell him, like, you've got advanced degrees, you have advanced scientific knowledge and understanding, you're one of the smartest people alive, you can do this. And he's like, I still know nothing about physics and warp theory. I'm going to be fucking winging it the best I can figure it out. This isn't this isn't great. And that fear, that anxiety. How does it express itself? Well, it expresses itself in a version of Trip showing up and expressing those doubts to him, right? Now, there's a cool twist to all of this. And that was a scene earlier where Trip pulls him to the side and says, listen, uh, under normal circumstances, I wouldn't even let you in this room unless you had a four years of Starfleet Academy under your belt. Right. Um, you know, this this is a scary part of the ship. Um, if shit gets bad, like bad, bad, I want you to wake me up. I know it'll kill me, but if it's between me or the ship, ergo the mission to save Earth, uh, my life is less important and I'm giving you a real easy decision here. I'm, I'm telling you, wake me up. I will suffer the consequences and I will save the day. And you're not alone, really, right? This is under the table. And mind you, this is a function that he, Trip serves. It's so important and a speciality that's so difficult to hone that when he was critically injured and Archer's only way out of solving it was to create a short-lived clone and harvest its brain, he said, bet. You know, like, that's how hard it is to do this and trip is saying like if it gets if it gets dicey just wake me up and i will throw myself on the pyre to solve the problem it's not on you because again 10 weeks at full impulse and that's even thinking that they could clear it in 10 weeks it's not going to go any further like all of those bed sheets are going to be completely ruined by the time they clear <laughs> 10 weeks also i want to point out too i didn't even see fucking like iv drips in people so like dudes are just out there. how long can you go without drinking before there's like serious problems, right? Everyone wakes up dehydrated. <laughs> this stasis thing is so fucking bad. And it, she, here's a dot on your head. We're going to pretend that nobody in the audience knows about pee, poop, or water. You just got, you woke up from a long nap and you're all stiff. Ooh, Here. No. <laughs> when you wake up, Flocks uh, will be there to greet you with uh, some Gatorade. It'll be fine. He starts trying to read up on this and it is miserable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, T Paul's like, I'm sure there's a guide somewhere. We don't put passwords on anything. Nothing's restricted access. Any alien uh, enemy captain can just stroll in and read the fucking captain's log in our, our mission. Delete stuff. all our entire database of info we've established. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just know. go. I'm sure somewhere in the database there's warp cores for dummies. They start trying to get the ship prepped. 
to go to warp. And that's where they start laying out these calculations. And like you said, for as far as techno babble, like this seems like pretty hard, like like real math Mm -hmm. conditions and variables like you got to do this condition unless you're within two light years of this type three gravimetric field and this and that. And you're like, by the time it's Picard on a galaxy class. Or hell, maybe even Scotty on the the, you know, OG and I'm sorry, you know, the 1701. Maybe the computer is just doing all this. But at this point, you've got these void engineers who are. Conning physics into creating a warp field that will move this vessel through time and space faster than light. And if any of these calculations are wrong, it will unleash hell. Yeah. And it's everybody it's, will die. And, and then punctuating that with Trip literally showing up and using his fear of this very fact that's being laid out in the dialogue you just experienced with how dense and difficult this task really is without having to really know what was said shows up and says, this is a machine that is built to cheat the laws of physics. You know, like what a tidy piece of dialogue to tell you how fucking wild a warp drive is. You know, we're wearing overalls because we're doing dirty work down here. There's no glossy L cars panels. There's no smooth uh, commercial appear here. Like we are, they haven't come up with the gooey yet. We're still doing this the old fashioned way. It's not even DOS. It's just fucking levers and sliders and disco lights. Uh, Of course, they're able to get the warp field generated. They get in there. They start running into some turbulence. The Flox has to do calculations on the fly. He's trying to go to, to Paul, who has been saying like, oh, I've been experiencing emotions and I've been snippy. I, I don't trust myself. You need to be the one to do all this. I can't even remember where the fucking like light switches, which is further, you know, just cementing the fact that she's a figment of his imagination. She can't interact with the environment. By the end, they get through, uh, you know, they don't die. The engines get a little stressed out, but hey, everything's fine. They wake up uh, Archer, who is not covered in piss and shit for some reason. Guess that hypo spray was pretty effective to, like, close the holes up. Porthos is happy to see him. You know, this is the B plot is Porthos wanting to hang out with his with his master. So glad that happened for him. And oh, there was a really nice scene where right before they actually puts him under that I do want to credit, which is flocks getting exasperated by every single member of the crew, not wanting to abandon their post and him having to explain that it's going to be fine and he can run the place because Archer sounds like he's about to give the same speech. And he goes, actually, all I wanted to say was uh, I wouldn't, there's very few people I would trust in the situation and you're one of them. And I know you've got it. Uh, so, you know, good luck. You you're a doctor. Put, you save the ship on a regular basis. Yeah. You're like, Actually, of course you got this. That's fine. What what I wanted to ask you, doctors, can you take care of my dog? Like, uh, I, I know we all figure this up. Just please make sure that any poops he makes in the hallways get cleaned up. So, you know, the place isn't a real shithole when we wake up. I, I just like that the way he's like, no, actually, I have total confidence in you. And Flox was took that as a real genuine compliment. You know, like it's a good that's a good character moment. So. Uh, by the end, 
he's like, all right, T'Pol, I'm going to go walk you back. I kind of. I wish they wouldn't have directly acknowledged the fact that, you know, she's been asleep the entire time. Like, I think that she could have just dipped off and then he could have said something to her later on and been like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I would have actually preferred. That he takes he walks her to the to the door and says, are you going to let me, you know, are you going to open the door? He goes, no, because you're already in there. Like, because I'm starting like my, we're out of the, the disturbance. My mind is starting to reassert itself. And I know that the last the last. Uh, so I'm actually going in there to wake you up. But thank you. You know, like say like, you know, kind of closing the loop a little bit. Of like, he, yes, this is something Denoblians do, and this is why it's a positive thing, because as the stress fades, they have the self-awareness to close the loop and say, I have to be done with this. Thank you. I could have also gone for a alternate ending where um, he's walking through the hall with Archer and other people, and then uh, he says, well, you know, to Paul, what do you think? And then Archer's like, what are you talking about? And then like, you know, they have to like wrestle him down because they see he's psychotic and hallucinating and doing crazy things. And then he's like, see all the phaser blasts all over the ship. And like <laughs> kind of, you know, that same beat they went for in the zombie uh, Vulcan ship where like they did the fake out and like, Oh, you're still crazy. And it's not like really a happy ending. And then he, you know, wakes up in sick bay, like chained to bed. And they're like, all right, are, are you still hallucinating? He's like, no, I'm, I'm fine now. Sorry about that. <laughs> I kind of reached my tolerance right at the last second there. Appreciate uh, that you guys were already turns awake. Turns out we cleared the uh, the the nebula like 48 hours prior to you initializing the warp engines and like grinding all the gears down and all that other stuff you just completely hallucinated. <laughs> the entire climax was you just fucking up. Yeah, you really fucking the engines up and keeping us in bed way longer than we should have been. Overall, uh, though, I, I don't mind this one. Um, the The plot is a total uh, carbon copy, but there's a lot to enjoy in the performances. I'm glad John Billingsley had the opportunity to have like a real doctor episode like this that gives you a lot of detail about his character and to in general. Um, so. Yeah, you've seen it before, but it's worth doing a second time. It's also in service to the meta plot. This isn't them going to some Wild West town for no fucking reason. So you've got a real crazy space dilemma, but it's in service to the bigger story. Uh, Jolene Blaylock gets to play around and do crazy emotional stuff. Uh, it's a win. You know, had we if one, which is also, again, a good episode, if one did not exist, this thing would be thumbs up all over the place. Even though it's a giant retread, it still acted well. Again, I'm just saying you could have kept the basic premise there, but I think had to Paul been a malicious hallucination or an alien outside influencer manipulating him, or there could have actually been a credible uh antagonistic threat th that would have been a different story and that would have been welcome as well what are we watching next week sir let's see here um
Doctor's order. All right. Uh, next, we're going to season four, episode twenty-six. Hope and fear finally decoding the message from Starfleet they received months <laughs> earlier. Voyagers directed to a nearby sector where an unmanned Federation starship awaits for them. However, things not what it seems. Boy, that was wise. Actually, (laughs) so fucking good. Uh, Hope and fear, aka uh, Janeway's a fucking bitch, and the Delta Quadrant is completely justified. Money, yeah, dead. We're going into season three, episode seventeen, hatchery. Enterprise finds a derelict Zindi insectoid starship carrying a cache of unhatched eggs, and Archer takes an increasingly obsessive interest in preserving them. This sounds like this is going to be an episode where uh, we're going to have Trip all up in Archer's business as to why he is risking the crew of the Enterprise and Earth to save a bunch of nasty bug babies. This is going to be a Starship Troopers episode. Yeah, you were close, except we live in a worse timeline. It's a read. This is a read episode. Mm. But uh, the premise is cool. I'll grant it. It's actually a very interesting uh, Star Trek episode. So, you know, this is that it sounds like that classic, like. I need to sacrifice myself to save my enemy, and that's like, you know, how Starfleet operates or whatever. This will be cool if uh, Archer's obsession is somehow he's under like a chemical influence or there is something like manipulating him into. Doing what he's doing instead of it just being Boy Scout Archer. I'm really going to look forward to what you have to say about this now. Yep. And uh, while we always remember that Arcturus was right here on Future Please, we'll actually keep watching Enterprise next week. See you then. (laughs) 